Hello and welcome to your Over the Farm Gate podcast brought to you by Farmers Guardian and UK Research and Innovation. I'm your host this week, FG Deputy Editor Olivia Midgley. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite platform so you never miss an episode. Up this week and ahead of COP26, we continue with our series on climate change and sustainability, looking at the innovative solutions the farming sector is deploying to mitigate the industry's impact on the environment. This week, we're talking feed and specifically alternatives to imported soya. Insects and algae could become a mainstay in livestock diets. And as Jess Fredenberg's been finding out, they have many benefits. How can livestock farming break its reliance on soy and develop more sustainable ways of feeding animals? Well, better grazing and forage management, as well as growing more of our own pulses, are some of the on-farm alternatives. But what about alternative bought-in protein feeds? Well, two startups may hold some solutions. Raphael Jovin is the co-founder and chief scientist at Suziwi, which is growing algae in the deserts of Morocco and South Africa. And Kieran Whitaker is the founder of EntoCycle, a company producing black soldier fly larvae. Both are hoping to supply the UK livestock feed sector and are being supported with funding by UKRI, a non-departmental public body sponsored by the government's Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Tom Jenkins is Deputy Challenge Director at UKRI and joined me, Raphael and Kieran earlier. I started off by asking Tom what UKRI was hoping to achieve with these investments. So the Transforming Food Production Programme is a £90 million investment coming from the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund. And it's all about how we can help the UK food production system to become more productive, efficient, resilient, and get the sector on a trajectory to net zero emissions by 2040. So within this, we're funding both the science base, SMEs, large companies, and growers and producers, typically through collaborative R&D to take new ideas towards commercial outcomes that are ultimately going to benefit growers and producers. And within this, we support both traditional agriculture, so it could be things around crop and livestock disease, it could be things like labour availability and how we can take forward things like automation and robotics to safeguard against labour security issues. But we're also funding new and different ways of producing foods, things like vertical farming, but also alternative protein production. Raphael, to start with, can you please just give us a very brief overview of what your project is and how it's producing the algae? We grow algae very cheaply, the way they grow in nature. And what that means is is that we can produce algae from empty desert land. And when I mean empty desert land, I'm talking about real proper Sahara sand desert, seawater, and the carbon dioxide in the wind and in the seawater. So the company is called Susewi for Sun Sea Wind. And what we do is, is we work with local Moroccan organisms that grow well in those environments. And year round, we repeat the algal blooms that are the basis of the uh, fish food chain. And it would be a very legitimate question for lots of farmers to ask, how does that help UK agriculture? We are very good at producing protein. We produce 24.7 tons of biomass, which is 55% protein per hectare per year. 
We have uh, 6,100 hectares of land in Morocco today. Uh, there's lots more room for lots more ponds all around the world. And that produces about 115,000 tons of dry biomass at around 55% protein, which has got very, very good feed trial results, is better than fish meal in terms of um, feed conversion ratios, has no anti-nutritional factors, um, is very easy to process. So the, uh, the benefit is, is that we can contribute to animal feed without using any additional natural or agricultural land. We can produce uh, protein very competitively. And uh, right now, with Innovate UK's help, we are going through the sort of final engineering to scale this up to proper industrial scale. Okay, thank you. That that does sound really interesting. And I'll come back to you for a bit more detail in a second. But Kieran, can you please just tell us exactly how EnterCycle works and what products you're looking to produce from it? Um, thank you for having us on the show today. Um, so EnterCycle is the UK's leading insect technology company, and our focus very much is on kind of deep tech technology. Um, we use kind of the cutting edge of, of agro-farming and kind of food production systems in the form of computer vision and automation technologies to mass produce a very special insect called the black soldier fly. Remember, we are having to, you know, like any traditional farming practice, we're having to breed a new population while also produce uh, a, a larger proportion to produce insect-based protein products. So we are able to produce products such as kind of whole fresh frozen products for the pet market, dried um, whole larvae for uh, kind of chickens and, a, and a, uh, you know, an organic farm or uh, insect meal that can go into formulated feed diets. Um, and actually the kind of the way the legislation is actually changing is, is now humans are going to be accepted as a, as a product. We're very much a farming company as well in terms of the, the, the way that we have to pro, uh, breed and produce the insects. So at one end we have uh, eggs that are hatching that are smaller than a grain of sand and we're able to kind of count and monitor and measure those. And again, on the, on the, on the, the, the adult end, which is a fly, uh, we're able to, in a 3D dimensional space, qu quantity control and qualify insects. So by having this real-time analysis, we can build cheaper, more efficient factories, um, and we're able to deploy them anywhere in the world. So Ento Farm One is our flagship facility that with Innovate UK's support, we're building here in the UK. And what we're looking at is kind of hyper-local protein production. So, you know, removing that 80, 90 percent uh, dependency on imports and actually shifting that to a protein production that can happen here in the UK. Um, and again, we're looking very much internationally, but it's all about that local production. So in different regions of the world, producing it locally. Hey, thank you. Uh, and I think, did I just hear a, a train going over? <laughs> you, you, uh, you mentioned earlier that you're underneath uh, a, a railway line in, in London. So if listeners are hearing all that bumping, it is a train, train going overhead. <laughs> Let's look at the nutritional profile of how algae, uh, algae products and, and insect products compare now. Raphael, can I just come to you? How would these, uh, how would these algae products compare nutritionally to, say, soya meal? For, and I'm thinking again, obviously, for monogastrics here. Yeah, it's, so it's a very good question. Um, we are producing different organisms 
and we can amplify lipids or pigments or protein, for example. And the current organism, the currently the way we're growing it with uh, an emphasis on pigments and lipids, we still get 55%. So our pigment, uh, our protein range is between 55 and 65% of the dried biomass. That's very much uh, familiar. We're uh, 92% dry. Uh, of that, let's say 55% is protein. And um, from a uh, amino acid composition, we're very good on methionine and lysine. So we're not lacking several of the uh, essential amino acids. We've got all the branch chain amino acids, uh, valine, leucine, isoleucine, which are uh, necessary for muscle building. It is a very easy to digest protein. We don't have cell walls like other uh, organisms do. Our protein is, is uh, has, again, no anti-nutritional factors. There are no... Uh, off flavors or other things to consider. It is a very, very benign, fairly boring flavor. We sort of very much value the sort of high quality aspects of the food as opposed to providing a hyper-processed um, sort of extract that has gone through sort of 27 extraction steps. Is there also potential of the algae um to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in ruminants? Because I know that's that's something that, you know, we've seen reports about over the last few years. There's definitely that potential for a different type of organism than the one that we are growing. There are other companies that are doing that. We're good friends with them. And it is a very effective way, and it is one that can go through the regulatory process. And if you add enough of that it's a red alga, it's a kind of seaweed, uh, you can reduce methane emissions 95% from, from cow burps. That's a very, very uh, uh, important lever to reduce methane reduction, you know, to, to reduce methane emissions. And so, yes, we are very conscious of that. Uh, we've got some collaborations, but that's not the organism we grow but those red alga are very, very good at reducing those methane emissions. Have you been wondering if your maize is ready to harvest yet? It's really important that you cut it at the optimal time to maximise quality and to age storage in the clamp. With modern varieties that stay green and with more variable weather, it can be difficult to get this right. But don't worry, just download the LG Maze Manager app. The harvest tool will lead you through a simple test in the field that will tell you when the maize crop is ready to harvest. It also includes a wealth of advice on the best varieties to use next season. Search LG Maze Manager in your app store today. Kieran, can you just tell us as well, how do the products that you're producing compare nutritionally um, to other animal feed, uh, whether it's soya, whether it's grain, whether it's beans? How, how does it compare? Yeah, so insects are an, an animal-based protein, so they have all the kind of key 12, 14 amino acids, uh, similar to fish meal. Um, kind of it's, it's not 
it's not fair or comparative to say how is it compared to soya because soya is a plant-based protein and you need to be blending further proteins whether they are synthetically produced or other animal-based proteins like fish milk into those diets um we can uh, as with uh, algae we're able to produce a range of products so between kind of 42 to 65 percent protein uh, depending on how much we process so if we whether we extract the, the lipids from that and whether we further refine that and we're able to do that all kind of today with off-the-shelf technology but what doesn't what hasn't existed is the breeding production of insects so i think the the more interesting question is how are we going to start incorporating these alternative proteins including insects into animal diets whether it's on wiener diets with pigs or into chick feed into chickens you're seeing healthier animals as they are then going into their kind of longer phase uh, growth cycle uh, you know the fattening phase so insects are a meat-based protein they're never going to replace everything you know i think there's this kind of um, hope and dream that everything can be replaced but it's going to be a, a, a slow and steady increment of one two three four five percent inclusion of these products as as the market start to grow as in terms of the volume starts hit the market so there's that also i think there's a misconception which is these feed companies that we're supplying they need tons of product per per, per delivery not kind of a few hundred kilos and so production volume is almost as important as the as product quality or you know sustainability so that's where we're really focusing and ento farm one will be producing over 2,000 tons of insect protein products annually um, but also we're producing a biofertilizer or a, a frass so for, for lack of a better phrase the insect poo has really high quality growth potential we're seeing uh, up to a doubling of plants growth using a small inclusion of insect frass in, in a fertilizer, so for example, um, uh, lettuce and cabbage, you know, again, we're seeing up to 100% wet work growth. Uh, and this is across the board, whether it's into fruit, into vegetables. Um, so it's another really exciting avenue. It's not just the protein we're tackling, but also the kind of carbon-free um, uh, oil-free um, fertilizers to help plants grow at the same time. Um, Raphael, if you know, if we were to go and go over to Morocco, I know you're also producing in South Africa. What would people see, and what is exactly the production process? What does it actually involve? Sure, uh, I hope everybody comes and visits. It's far away from civilization. Um, we have a very large seawater pipeline that reaches down to the clean so-called upwelling water, which is the water that comes from the ocean depths. It's so-called Antarctic bottom water. It's 880 years old since it was the last time at the surface. And it is very nutrient-rich, very carbon-rich, and cold and clean. We pump this into large basins where we have grown a seed organism. So the first 10 days of the seed organism is in the lab. The next 10 days are uh, in a greenhouse under very controlled conditions, but already experiencing the sort of full environmental uh, exposure to the light and the desert winds. And then the last 10 days in big, large grow-out ponds. And what makes our production system different is that we as the algae grow, we keep diluting them with natural seawater and their large oval or sort of raceway ponds that have a paddle wheel pushing the water around in circles. What our system is 
very good at is making algae grow fast so that the cells divide every day. And you can imagine uh, sort of the geometric progression if you start with uh, one cell dividing um, 30 days later, you have a billion cells. And so our system is very much geared towards making the algae grow quickly. That turns the uh, ponds a light brown color, which we can actually see from space. Our ponds are so large that we can see them from space. And it allows us to sort of do an assessment of the quality and the uh, effectiveness of our system. So one of the things that we do here in the UK is, is we do the overwatch and the control of what is happening in on the ground in Morocco to be able to anticipate when do we need to change the growth conditions or add more of the inoculum. The organisms that we grow are actually quite beautiful under the microscope. But uh, what we do is, is we take those and we concentrate them in very, very simple, uh, passive, gravity-fed uh, mining screens that allow us to pull the so-called fines in the mining context out of the water. And then we can dry them very quickly. Um, we work with local renewable energy. Our farm in Morocco is surrounded by uh, wind farms. There's a lot of solar power as well. And we generate a small excess of fresh water, which is very important um, for uh, removing the salt from the, from the biomass. So we're very conscious of the needs for, for uh, in a sense, clean protein. It is organic. Um, and we're also very conscious of the carbon footprint in the sense that if we bury 15%, 1,5% of our biomass, the entire supply chain, including the shipping to Europe, uh, becomes carbon neutral. So all of the activities, the growing of the algae at 15% burial is carbon neutral. And any more that we bury becomes carbon negative. So that's what you can expect to see, that we grow some and we bury a small amount as well. Okay. That was something I was going to ask, actually, is um, we're talking about, you know, the possibility of this replacing something like imported soy meal. And I think some of the farmers listening might be thinking, well, hang on a minute, why would we then import something from Morocco or South Africa, which, you know, a pretty long way away? Why would we import a feed like that? I mean, you're, you're saying that it's that it's carbon neutral, um, but I think my my question probably for Tom is, should we be should we be funding things that are actually creating more imports rather than rather than trying to encourage farmers to produce food within within their own cycle and or, or more locally? I think that's a good question, Jez. With algae specifically, Raphael can probably come in with this. There are reasons why that production system is based where it is in relation to getting the optimal growth um, for those algal species. I mean, the vast majority of our portfolio that we fund in terms of the projects are looking at 
scaling up technologies and approaches within the UK. So the, the AgriSat project that Raphael's been describing is probably a bit of an anomaly in that respect. But if we are looking at those longer supply chains, which are potentially taking things like fish meal and soy meal, I think longer term, they're probably not too sustainable. And looking at ways in which we can get different systems that have a better environmental footprint that can also bring in the same nutrients that are required, particularly for things like the polyunsaturated fatty acids that you would typically get from fish oils or fish meals that go into the aquaculture sector. What the um, AgriSAP project is doing is going through nature and the primary producers within that food chain to take those organisms to produce those nutrients. So I think there are probably reasons behind why that particular project is based in Morocco and other areas where you've got the right conditions to grow the organisms. But we would always be looking to support UK companies because one of the other things we're trying to do alongside helping the food production sector become more productive, resilient and transition to net zero is support companies to grow and scale, create high value jobs and also get more corporation tax to, if you like, prime and support the UK economy as well. Uh, Raphael, is this is this something that, I mean, Tom just said there that there are reasons why why the production is in is based in Morocco, but is this something that could be produced in the UK as well? Not the kind of organisms that we are growing. There are good reasons to be in Morocco. First of all, it is much closer than South America for soya, for example. Um, but it is the closest proper desert to Europe. And it has much more sunlight. Um, and it has a very uh, sort of good environment because the deep sea water comes to the surface. But to Tom's point... We are truly a UK company. All our patents come from here. All our technology comes from here. The idea is as we do the uh, valorization of the biomass here in the UK, just like uh, EntoCycle, we uh, want to export this technology in the form of licenses around the world. But the real sort of supervision, the system controls, the uh, specialized sensor equipment, the uh, inter the mining of the satellite data, all of that happens here in the UK and it will stay in the UK. From a UK agriculture perspective, we would like to do a lot more in the sense that we could do soil amendments and other things as well. But for the moment, we're starting with the food and feed applications because those are the most developed and we've got to start somewhere. But the fact is that doesn't mean that we're not focused on, in a sense, reducing the environmental pressure in the UK. What we are doing is a net positive. It's new production. It's uh, increasing the capacity to grow food without detracting from the environment. So in that sense, it's just a way to help uh, reduce the pressure on land so that we can do more things like rewilding and protecting the nature here in the UK as well. Kieran, can you tell us a little bit more about the production process of EntoCycle, uh, particularly in layman's terms? I know you were talking earlier quite a lot about the technology involved, but if you can just tell us how you actually get to the end product and also tell us a little bit about this circular system that it involves, because I think that's something that farmers listening will find particularly interesting. 
Yeah, sure. So I can't exactly go into the nuts and bolts because it's based around proprietary technology that we've built and patented um, under kind of several patents at both UK and international level. However, I'm kind of going to the, you know, the, the top level. So very much like other farming practices, we have two processes. We have to have a grandparent stock that re replenishes the population. And so within that, you have the females that lay eggs. So if each female can lay up to 1,300 eggs. You can fit around 1,000 eggs on the, head, on the head of a biro. They then hatch into very small larvae, uh, also known as neonates, that again are less than a millimetre long. Those larvae can then grow up to 5,000 times their body mass in 9 to 12 days. So at that 9 to 12 day process, we divide them into two. So we have the 2% the are then maintained to grow into flies, and I'll touch on that in a second. And the rest, 98%, are used to actually just fatten up into large larvae, um, in those nine to 12 days. And then they themselves are fed on different types of inputs. So food waste, uh, agricultural side streams, et cetera. They're then post-processed into the different market requirements. Um, and I'll go again, both in those two areas. So when we're breeding them, it, it, the 2% the that we're retaining, what you then have to do is grow the larvae up to their kind of full capacity. They then turn into what's called a pre pupate So they change from a creamy white into a dark brown, uh, purpley colored la um, pre pupate larvae. So they pretty much tell you when they're ready to be harvested at that phase. The larvae then, similar to how a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, goes into a, into a uh, pupate stage um, where the metamorphosis phase happens. So the, they literally break down their genetic um, profile, reform that into a fly at which point the fly emerges from a casing and then they are ready to then be put back into the breeding cages to act and mate. Now, the reason why black soldier flies are so important and so impressive is because the adults don't have a, tradition, a traditional digestive system, which means they don't eat. They're not going to land on food or they're not going to land on manure, they land on you. So they're not a disease vector. But what that does mean is that the larvae have to build all of that energy up, um, all, all of that kind of mass and size from the larvae stage. So that's why they're so phenomenal, so voracious eaters of organic material. Now, again, they're not a pest species, so a larvae will never climb a tree and eat an apple. But if an apple is rotting, so, so say a farmer has you know, a, a bad season or there's lots of uh, fruit waste from supermarkets, et cetera, that's the perfect type of food waste for the larvae. So the larvae, you know, insects and flies have been around for the best part of 150 million years. Uh, what is their job in nature? It is to, to upcycle waste materials back into high quality nutrients. So the apple falls from the tree, the worm eats the apple, the bird eats the worm, and off we go up the food web. But we don't do that in kind of mainstream agriculture at the moment or mainstream farming. And that's exactly where EnterCycle comes in with that closed loop solution where we're able to use the ferocious capacity of the insects to grow that almost 5,000 times their body mass in that nine to 12 days. So I think that hopefully gives a little flavour of the two processes. Yeah, that's that's a phenomenal growth, isn't it? Have you actually have you modelled what volume of insects you could produce if you were to use, say, all the the food and agricultural waste in the UK? No, we haven't, because that's a that's a very um, well, first of all, it's a very difficult number because you go to different sources. I think there's a better way around is to say, okay, what is the market predicting? What is the market assuming? So if you look, take PET, for example, um, they're assuming that we can use 
And the need this next year will be 20,000 tonnes of insect protein. Uh, WWF Tesco's report that came out just a few weeks ago um, has identified half a million tonnes capacity for the UK market in the next kind of five to six years. So if you if you kind of take it, what, what is the market demand requiring? That doesn't include um, uh, humans at all in terms of direct-to-consumer. I'm not expecting a, a human to eat a whole insect, but you know, insect protein-based products such as pastas and breads, etc., which you are now starting to see come in the market in the Western world. That is where the interesting is. So the, the kind of last report I can give you is either the, the Barclays report um, that they analysed last year or again the Rabobank from earlier this year, which is kind of, you're looking at ultimately a kind of half a billion tonnes is, is possibly required of alternative proteins. And that's not to say insect will take all of it. It's, it's not a silver bullet. We, we are going to have partner solutions such as algae, such as uh, single cell proteins. You know, there's going to be a, a broad range of solutions that help us meet the different market criteria. Part of the Innovate UK project that we funded, Insectal Revolution, uh, one of our partners is Zero Waste Scotland. So the kind of government arm of, of Zero Waste. So they've identified as 1.7 million tons of organic waste material that's not being utilized in, in a kind of in, a, in an optimal way whether that's whey being flushed into the sea or um, spent uh, whiskey grains that are, that are going off and can't really be used to feed cattle so that's a uh, you know NSUC was never going to be able to tackle all of that and okay of course there are there are waste streams in there that are not interesting to or not not you know not particularly suitable for insects um, I think what you're really starting to see globally, though, is that there are more types of waste streams because, again, the insects aren't fussy about what they will eat. It's more about what the regulatory requirement is permitting in different regions. And so, you know, they will happily eat chicken, um, which is a big issue in, for example, areas of Wales. Uh, they will happily eat pig, uh, pig manure, which is huge issues in parts of North America. And so, again, all of this is just nutrients that we are not utilising in the right way. So I know I haven't answered your question directly, but enter cycle alone and never going to, be able to tackle all the food waste however with by building facilities and licensing our technologies to partners we can start to really make you know hundreds of thousands of tons of insect protein here in the uk tom shall we just for one second can we just geek out a little bit on the on the technology of all of this because i from what i understand that's that's where um, where you guys have really come in in terms of what you've what you've been funding and supporting. Can you tell us a little bit about the technology involved with both both of these projects? Um, I know, for example, EnterCycle has been using sensors originally designed in for space, um, and unlike we heard from Raphael, he's actually managing these plants in Morocco completely remotely from from the UK. So, can you tell us exactly what what is all the technology being being used here, and 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 also what promise does that potentially hold for other production systems in the future? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think the common link, if you like, across these two projects is they're taking precision type approaches and technologies so that you've got really um, high levels of control over biological systems. So they're both looking to see how you can really take nature's solutions, but using all of the availability of diagnostics, sensors, things like artificial intelligence and machine learning, to put those into a very controllable industrial application and process. How do you see, or where, where do you see this kind of thing going in the future? I mean, you know, what can you give us some sort of examples of how you think food production might increasingly change as we go ahead? I think 
there's probably different opportunities in different sectors. So the, the way in which we fund, I think we mentioned at the start, there's the more traditional agriculture. So we're taking similar approaches around diagnostic sensors, precision ag type approaches to help growers and farmers make really informed decisions. So it's helping that management practice to optimise productivity and efficiency and to drive down things like previous prophylactic treatments, whether that's um, crop protection chemistry or, or whatever it happens to be. I think the similarity for the two projects we've been speaking about today is they're probably driving what could be new exciting industry sectors, albeit at the moment they're looking to displace some of the less sustainable import imports that come from things like soy meal and fish meal. So the funding scheme that you heard about from Kieran and Raphael came under what we're calling our future food production systems competition. And that also supported things like um, controlled environment agriculture. So that's where you can use things like vertical farming and different irrigation principles like aeroponics to produce food in more efficient ways, but also potentially in non-traditional agricultural environments, which could be cities or old industrial brownfield sites. So we're looking to see where we can help to both address more traditional systems, but also look at opportunities to drive new systems through different technologies and approaches that are coming up through the research base. Thanks to Jez, Tom, Kieran and Raphael for that deep dive into the world of alternative feed proteins. More on sustainability and climate change in the coming weeks. So look out for that. Well, that's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes of Over the Farm Gate. Until next week, from us at FG, thank you for listening. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.